0: As you take your seat, would you please open in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. We'll look at the first five verses of John 17. As you are aware, I'm sure by now, Pastor Barclay's away this morning. Uh, There'll be a few weeks he's away in July as well, and so I'm planning, uh, in God's uh, Lord willing, we'll be preaching a couple more sermons in July, and I was thinking of uh, what to do for these three Sunday morning sermons this summer, and uh, was thinking about continuing. We've been going through the Upper Room discourse when I've been preaching in the mornings, continuing that, and now entering into John 17, which does divide fairly uh, well into three different sections. And so we're going to begin that this morning. And as you turn to your pages in the Bible, the the, the chapter in the Bible. I will say, this is uh, one of those chapters in the Bible that I come open before you with with great trepidation. Uh, J.C. Ryle, for instance, calls this the most remarkable chapter in the Bible. It stands alone, and there is nothing like it. And so it is a weighty chapter to open together, and yet it's a chapter that is of great value for all of us to have the opportunity as we will have as we read these verses to peer into the heart of our Savior, Jesus Christ, his most vulnerable moment that's been revealed to us just hours before he is taken to go to the cross. We see this prayer, the Son of God coming to his Father. So with that, let's read the first five verses of John 17. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Would you please pray with me? Our God, in heaven, I pray that you would help us to consider these words before us. And would you bring life to our hearts? Help us as a praying people as a people who put our trust entirely in the Savior, Jesus Christ, and would you increase and strengthen our faith this morning and cause all of us to turn our eyes to you, the one who has made us and the one who gives redemption in the Son, Jesus Christ. And So we pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Robert Murray McShane, the famous Scottish pastor, Uh, Once said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. In other words, if you really want to know a person, want to know what he is really like, then know his prayers. Pay attention to what he prays for. Pay attention to how he prays. And then maybe consider when you find yourself in a time of great stress and trouble consider how do i pray what does it say about me the things that i pray for begin asking these questions and you'll begin to have even greater insight into your own heart you'll learn more about yourself by paying attention to your own prayers. And even thinking about that, I was wondering uh, if we were to do that and ask ourselves the questions, How? what do I pray for? How do I pray? How many of you, I wonder, would be willing perhaps even to invite others to listen in on your deep personal prayers? Uh, Of course, I don't mean the ones we pray perhaps on Wednesday night in the prayer meeting, though those are good and of value. Or the prayers that we pray before a meal. Those we pray with the intention of others around us hearing them. Of course, we pray them to God. But what would you, how would you feel if someone were right next to you and you weren't aware until after you prayed? When you pray those prayers, when you are really and truly opening up the windows of your heart before God. How would you feel? What would that person who listened in know about you if you invited them into that area of your prayer life? It's an interesting question. In part, it's it's a it's an evaluative question for ourselves. But the amazing thing to me is that I I wouldn't want you to be a part of my deep, personal prayer lives. And yet, as we look at John 17, what we are invited to read and to hear is the deep, personal prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ in His greatest time of stress and crisis the night before he is taken to the cross. And Jesus is not taken unawares when Judas appears to hand him over to the authorities. He knows what is about to happen. He knows even better than Judas knows. He knows that the terrible death on the cross awaits him. He knows that the time has come in which he is going to present himself before God the Father as the perfect and only sacrifice for the people of God. He knows that he is about to bear and endure what none of us in this room are capable of enduring so that we might know God. He does this to fulfill God's plan of redemption that was put in place before the foundation of the world. He knows all of this. And he goes to his father in prayer in this great time of intense crisis. And he invites you and me into that. To read, to see, to hear and know his prayer. Reading this and thinking about this morning, I just wonder, how would I pray in a situation like this? How would you pray in a situation in which you know that you're about to go through some terrible crisis? You know this is going to happen, and it's unavoidable. How would you pray? What would you pray for? I hope that we can begin to understand and see the things that our Lord prays for in this situation. And we'll begin that this morning. First of all, I want us to consider the context of Jesus' prayer. And then secondly and primarily, we'll pay attention to the content of his prayer here. This great, personal, deep prayer of our Lord. Well, first of all, the context of Jesus' prayer We see in verse 1 that Jesus has been speaking to his disciples. And then afterwards, he lifts his head, he lifts his eyes to heaven. And he says, Father, the hour has come. What is he saying? He's saying, Father, I, I know that the time is now. I am aware of the moment that we are in. The moment that has been planned from before the time the world existed the moment that all of history leans towards, the moment is here. And Jesus is preparing Himself for that moment. That moment of enduring the full judgment of God on the cross and the place of God's people. And Jesus says, The hour has come. Glorify Your Son. Personally, I am amazed by this opening of the prayer. I'm amazed that what Jesus is doing here is that He is meeting this moment in prayer. He is coming to this great and terrible moment. And what He does is He brings Himself, He presents Himself before His Father in Heaven. And He doesn't pray that He could escape somehow but rather He draws near to His Father in obedience and submission to the will of His Father. And He meets with Him in this moment. It's so amazing, isn't it? And I think that this is an example to us. I know we can't be Jesus. There is only one Jesus. There is only one Son of God. And yet He does give us examples to follow. Such as this, when you approach the crises in your life, and your impulse may be to run away from it, to ask God, do everything you can to protect me from this. But what Jesus does here is He he shows to us and invites us to see what it is to embrace God's promised help and grace in your times of great need. He's not running from the crisis, but instead He's drawing near to the Father in prayer as He faces this crisis. And I think this is something for us to consider as well. Rather than running away from the providences of our lives, draw near to the face of our God in heaven and seek Him And so Jesus says the hour has come, this terrible hour. And instead of turning back, he he steps into the Father's will, as it were, by drawing near to him in prayer. That's the context. That's what I want us to consider, the moment, the occasion of this prayer in John 17. But now I want us to consider what is it that Jesus prays? What is the content of this prayer? When verses 1 through 5, Jesus is really concerned about himself in this part of his prayer. You see, the past four chapters of John's gospel, he's been ministering to his disciples in the upper room. He's been preparing them for his departure. And now he turns to the Father and he, he says, Glorify your Son. Later, when we come back to this chapter next month, we'll see in verses 6 through 26, Jesus will then turn His attention and focus upon His disciples. He prays for His disciples. And then, even perhaps more amazing for all of us, at the end of this prayer, He prays for you, believer in Christ. He prays for you here in this prayer. But here, in these verses, Jesus prays for Himself as He considers The moment that has arrived. So what is on his heart? What is the prayer that Jesus prays as he draws near to the Father as he prepares for the cross to come? Well, verses 1 and verse 5 tell us. Look, verse 1 says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then in verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What does Jesus want here? He doesn't want the cross to be taken away. He doesn't want Judas's plans to be thwarted. No, what he wants, what he states and prays for, is that he, Jesus, the Son of God, be restored to the glory of that belongs to Him. The glory that has always belonged to Him. The glory that has, in a sense, been cloaked and covered up the moment He was conceived in Mary's womb. And when He was born and lived among men, the world looked at the Son of God who made them, and yet did not recognize their Maker who stood before them. Jesus longs for the glory that he has had from eternity past. The glory that he had before the world existed. The glory that he had the Son of God being face to face with God the Father. You see, when... Our Savior was born into this world which is darkened by sin. He he laid aside this uninterrupted fellowship that the Father and the Son have face to face. He does this in order to be among us, to live among us. But now that the time has come for Jesus to fulfill His work, He prays, Father, restore the glory that belongs to me. Restore us that we would be face to face. Father, Son, one another before each other. See, by putting on the human body, the Son of God has now lived as a creator among creatures. They did not recognize Him. They rejected Him. They despised Him. But now the time has come And he prays that his glory be restored to be in the presence of the Father face to face. You think about how the Son of God, when we come to Christmas and think about the incarnation, how the Son of God really brings himself down in order to be with us. But he does long to return here, to be in his rightful place. The thing is, Jesus isn't only praying for himself, is he? Verse 1, Jesus says, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus prays that he would be glorified, but only glorify the Son so that the Father may be glorified. He's looking at the cross and the agony that awaits, but his concern still isn't even for himself, isn't even only for his glory, as it were. But his concern is that God the Father would receive glory. And that's the urgent matter on Jesus' heart. That is what is at the top of Jesus' heart and his desire as he prays here in this moment. Is He's praying for the Father's glory, that the Father would be glorified. And I I stand here and I I read this passage and I find myself convicted. Is Is this urgency in my prayers? Is this an urgency in your prayers? God, would you be glorified? Whatever I endure, whatever is before me, God, I pray that you would receive all glory. Jesus is about to be covered in God's wrath for a world of lost and blind sinners. And he prays, glorify me. But not for myself. But so that I may bring glory to you. What a selfless prayer of our Lord. It's not begging to God to pay attention to me. But pray. A prayer that is filled with worship. And is consumed with the glory that belongs to the Heavenly Father. What is it that brings just great life and animates your prayers? Is it that God would be made known? That his name would be worshiped and glorified? I remember when I was still learning how to pray and was on a mission trip in Uganda, and we were with a group, and I was not allowed to eat breakfast until I had prayed for a full solid hour. And I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it at first. Pray for a few minutes, and then I would run out of things to talk about. But I was forced to keep going. No prayer, no breakfast. And so I learned to, to read the Scriptures and pray the Scriptures and to fill begin to fill my prayer life with the things that the Bible tells us about who God is. And I began to learn, I began to see that... I, I'm not running out of things to talk about anymore. I'm not running out of things to pray to God for. Because my my prayers began to be more focused on God, who He is, and His glory than they were on me. And all the things that I felt that I needed. And we see that this is the heart of our Savior too. This does raise a question, doesn't it? How is it how does Jesus being glorified, how does that bring glory to the Father? How does all that He's about to go through bring glory to the Father? Well, verses 2 and verse 4 tell us. It says this, since you have given Him authority over all flesh, given the Son authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And then in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Well, what is the work that Jesus was given to do? Well, verse 2 tells us it is to give eternal life. To give eternal life to all whom God has given Him. So you see in this moment of prayer, Jesus is also thinking about His mission. That the Father has given the Son a mission in His incarnation. And the mission is that the Son, Jesus Christ, would give eternal life to all of those who belong to God. And in verse 4, it tells us that Jesus has completed that mission. Jesus says, I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. Of course, the cross is still in front of him. There's a sense in which the work is still to do, but but Jesus looks ahead at the cross and he knows nothing is going to stop him. He anticipates it will be done. And when the Father glorifies the Son and will restore him to that face-to-face fellowship, Jesus will be vindicated for the work of the atonement that he has done on the cross. And by doing this, the Father in heaven will be glorified. How is the Father in heaven glorified? It's the salvation of his people. The salvation of his people. God is glorified when people are saved. Did you know that? God is glorified when people are saved. Jesus is able to say to the Father, You gave me a job to do, and everyone you have given me to be saved has not been lost, not one." And So Jesus has given himself over to the work of saving his people and glorifies his Father. Jesus longs for the Father's glory, and this longing needs to be our longing as well. And so again, we look at the heart of the Son here, the Son of God, and we see the heart of a child of God. It's to bring glory to God, to do, work, uh, to do the work that God gives us to do, to live in obedience to God's Word, which needs to be seen in our life. And so we begin to think, what are the things that I do in my life that brings God glory? Perhaps there are th- we think, there are a lot of things I do that glorifies God. But Jesus tells us in this prayer that the the thing that gives the most glory to God is this conversion of sinners, of the lost being found, of the blind now being able to see. My friends, I think what that means for us is that evangelism is not an option. That if we want to glorify God, if that is the, the urgency of our prayers and our heart, is we need to tell others that there is a Savior. There is a Savior of sinners and there is hope in Jesus Christ. We must never be afraid to share our faith. Because this brings glory to God. Perhaps you can pray for God to help you to do it. You can pray for the work of missions and evangelism. And ultimately we see here and we learn in scriptures that gospel work is not about our skill. It's not about our gifting, but it's about giving glory to God. So we point others to the Savior. Because this glorifies God. And so Jesus does the work of saving sinners. And then in verse 2 we see that this mission that Jesus is given is also to give eternal life to God's people. The salvation of sinners leads to eternal life. Eternal life. This is the great work that Jesus accomplishes. It's funny, it it would be enough to simply have the forgiveness of sins, wouldn't it? But he gives us eternal life as well. There are three things about this eternal life that Jesus gives that I want us to pay attention to here. Verse 3 we see that the eternal life that Jesus gives is a living relationship. It's not merely a forever existing. See, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? That you know God, that you know Him. I wonder if one of the reasons why some people reject the idea of heaven is because they can't stand the idea of simply merely existing without end. But that's not what eternal life is. Verse 3 tells us it is an eternal relationship with the eternal God, to know God and be known by God. Jesus Christ has come so that we can be brought before God and know Him. To know God, not as a stranger or not as a mere uh, doctrine or idea, not as some great person that's over there in heaven, but my space is somewhere over here on the fringe, but to know Him personally as the loving and gracious Father who has made you and who loves you. And really, this is what it is to be a Christian, isn't it? To know God to know God through Jesus Christ. There is only one God and He is only revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ alone reveals the Father. There is no other way to know God than through Christ. Because God who made the world sent His Son into the world so that you may know Him. Do you know God? Do you know Him? Not the idea of God. Not the doctrines of God, but do you know God? The personal triune God who has made you. Has He broken into your life and made Himself known to you? Do you love Him? Do you trust Him? You serve Him. That is eternal life, to know God. Eternal life is this relationship. But we also see in verse 2 that eternal life is a gift. John 17 verse 2, it says, Father, since you have given Him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Eternal life is something that God gives to sinners. Not as a reward, but freely as a gift to needy sinners. We are reminded here, there's nothing that we can do to gain eternal life, to enter into this everlasting relationship with God. There's nothing that I have to offer. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough good works. The best that I do falls short. My sin prevents me from coming to God, and that's true of you. Your sin prevents you from coming to God. And this is your problem, isn't it? You cannot save yourself, and yet you must be saved, or you are lost forever. What is your hope? Your only hope is that God would be gracious, that God would break into your life and rescue you out of this quagmire. Praise the Lord that He is a gracious God. He has made a way by sending His Son to rescue His people. Jesus is the great rescuer. Only He can give you eternal life, and He gives it as a gift. Thirdly, we see that eternal life its not only a relationship and a gift, but it's something that is fully accomplished. It's something that cannot be taken away. Accomplished by Jesus Christ. Again, look at verse 4. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. See, Jesus Christ accomplishes salvation once and for all, for all who believe, by his work on the cross. And if you've come to know God through Jesus Christ, this is something that you can be sure about. Your salvation is not dependent upon your work. It's not even dependent on how well you pray, or how many people you've led to the Lord. Those aren't the things that save you. The work of salvation is something that Jesus Himself does. The Son of God secures. He's the one who does it, and He secures our redemption by way of the cross. I think sometimes we come into the Christian life, when we come to meet Jesus and believe upon Him, we we think that perhaps maybe God will forget about me. Or maybe that that God's work is maybe not quite enough. And I was thinking uh, as I was flying on a plane this week, and I think about this person I knew whenever I go to the airport. uh, I knew this man once who spent three days at an airport because one plane after another kept being canceled. It was like the movie Terminal, but it was real. He was in the airport for three days, and naturally he began to wonder, will I ever see my wife and children again? And sometimes I think that we are afraid that God's going to skip over us like the airport skips over this man flight after flight. What if God cancels on me? I have a ticket. What if he forgets about me? There's so many others. Or what if he loses me among all the others? If you've ever had this fear, If you love Jesus, if you have come to know God through Jesus Christ, you can trust that Jesus' promise of eternal life is sure. Why? Because again, he says, I have accomplished that work. I have accomplished that work. It's the same word, accomplished, that Jesus says on the cross as he dies, when he says, It is finished. It is the same word. I have done it, I've done it all. Rest in me. Trust in me. And have eternal life. But you can only have eternal life. You can only have this certainty, this assurance, if you have placed your trust and rest in Jesus Christ alone. For He is the one who starts and finishes the work of salvation for all who would believe in Him. Would you do that this morning? Would you believe upon Jesus Christ and rest upon Him alone for your salvation? If you haven't come to Him, He is the one who forgives you of your sin. He is the one who gives you eternal life, which is in a, to know God eternally. Forever. Now You may say, Ben, well, I've, I've been a Christian for some time, but hear this word of help and and hope and comfort. We look at this and we are reminded Jesus Christ is the reason why a Christian has hope and does not despair. That even in our sorrows and our griefs, we still have that seed of joy and hope. Because we know that the Father answers the Son's prayer here in John 17. The glory that Jesus asked for, that He would be restored, it is given to Him. This glory that He has shared from before the time the world existed, it is given to Him. Jesus who goes to the cross, He bears the, 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 the judgment of God for those who would believe in Him, is buried in the grave, and He rises from the grave. And He sits now at the right hand of the Father, and the Bible tells us He will return in splendor and great glory, and He will judge for a final time. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so in our moments of great crisis and trouble, we can draw near to our Savior who brings us before the face of God with eternal life. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, because it is in Him and Him alone is life and light and salvation. Let's pray. The Lord in heaven, we thank You for giving us this glimpse of this great inter prayer. Would You fill our hearts with faith this morning? And cause us to sit and ponder your love for your people. That it pours out of the love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Would you lead us to praise all of our lives, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.